I want to start off today um, with some phrases and see if you recognize any of these. A bird in hand is worth two in the bush. A drop in the bucket. A fly in the ointment. A labor of love. A, a wolf in sheep's clothing. At his wit's end. Bite the dust by the skin of your teeth. Give up the ghost in the twinkling of an eye. No rest for the wicked. Put your house in order. See eye to eye. Straight and narrow. The apple of his eye. The blind leading the blind. The writing is on the wall. You reap what you sow and count the cost. Anybody recognize any of those? Okay. It might surprise you is all those come from the Bible. Uh, as does another phrase that you may have heard, the salt of the earth. Uh, now, this phrase may not be as common as it once was, but I suspect a lot of you have heard that phrase. Have any of you ever described somebody by that phrase or heard somebody else describe? And, and what does it mean to you? Okay, probably somebody good, trustworthy, somebody you can count on, or maybe just some, some good, just solid, ordinary person. Uh, well, whatever the connotation to you, it's likely something good. Jesus used this term to describe someone in Matthew 5.13, where we're continuing in our study of the, the, the Beatitudes, where he said, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot of men. Now, there's a statement of fact here. You are. Now, the grammarians will tell you that the emphatic second person plural goes with the article and the predicate to say, you, you alone, you only, and only you are the salt. So, who is you? Well, some tempt to limit the you to just the apostles, you know, the people who were listening to Jesus at the time. And some today say, well, it's just got to be pastors because they're the ones, you know, who really are the ones who need to be good. However, the emphatic you here does not convey that limitation, not to mention the context. Rather, you includes all true believers, all those who possess the character found in the previous verses, the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who this and that. Therefore, true believers and only they are and continue to be the salt of the earth. Okay, so we're salt. So what? Put another way, what's the significance of being salt beyond being a description of a good, trustworthy, solid individual. Well, salt is so plentiful today that literally we take it for granted. We cast it out to be trodden underfoot and tire of man. Uh, but in the ancient world, salt was a scarce and valuable commodity. In fact, uh, the Roman soldiers were sometimes paid with salt rations which could be easily bartered for other uh, needed goods. And their pay was called a salarium, from which we get our word salary today. 
in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were made were always to be made with salt. In Leviticus 2, it tells us, Every oblation of your meat offering shall be seasoned with salt. Neither shall you suffer the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your meat offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Jesus backs that up in Mark 9, where he says, Every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. So salt is seen as something that is pure, white, holy, and acceptable to God. So we find throughout scriptures the salt becomes emblematic of the covenant between God and his people. And in ancient times, salt was symbolic of fidelity, purity, friendship. Well, so what are the applications to us today? Um, Got to give a warning. Uh, just like last night, I think I will probably step on some feet today. Uh, in the light of what Jesus said here, salt is seen as an agent to arrest corruption. In the context of the previous qualities of the Beatitudes, believers are charged with the power, the moral influence that opposes and counteracts corruption. So, first, the bad news. Is there corruption around us? Well, in Daniel's great vision, he saw that the worldly powers would decay. They'd go from gold to silver to brass and then to iron and finally end with in clay. Uh, history started with clay. That's what Adam was made with and what we see is that all the great institutions will sometime, at some time uh, end in dust again in the face of a holy and righteous God. Now, we're simply blind if we can't see that we are in times of decay. And when things decay, they start to fall apart. Now, is that not apparent to all of us? Okay, let's start first with the family. Marriages are falling apart. Families are broken up and scattered. The very concepts of marriage and family have disintegrated, leaving almost half of our children without two parents. Cohabitation, the current marriage alternative, leaves women and especially children vulnerable to unreliable sources of stability operating without the commitment of legal, financial, and emotional obligation. Now, as an aside, young women, if you give yourself up easily, if you shack up with a guy without the clear commitment from him first to love Christ as his Savior, and then second to forsake all others but you, without uh, evidence by that minimum of legal obligation to you, which we call marriage, don't expect him to stick around. You are simply a rest stop on his highway of adventure. You're simply a friend with benefits. And he is not a real man. In fact, the Bible calls these women silly and weak, and it calls these men creeps. 
after describing men without character, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, For among them are those who creep into households and captivate weak women weighed down with their sins led on by various impulses. On another front, the recognition of same-sex marriage or unions by some states is leaving us with a legal and a constitutional crisis in our country. Uh, there's an article in the, in the current issue of the American Bar Association Journal with the opinion that the current patchwork of laws, including same-sex marriage and civil unions and domestic partnerships, along with some states which recognize one woman and one man as, uh, as the only way to marry, with various treatments of all those unions among the states is creating a confused system resulting in a denial of equal protection under the law. In addition, our United States Constitution has a clause called the Full Faith and Credit Clause which requires states to recognize the duly enacted laws of other states. So we should probably expect a Supreme Court ruling in the not-too-distant future on whether a state like Kansas, which says that marriage is just one man and one woman, must recognize and extend legal benefits to homosexual couples uh, who are married or have some other form of union from such states as Massachusetts or Connecticut or Vermont, New Hampshire, New York, the District of Columbia, and even Iowa. Who would have thunk it? Another front is our economy and government. Our federal government over the years has progressively increased regulation of the economy and complex and, and begun complex social programs, starting with President Franklin D. Roosevelt back in the 30s, continuing with President Lyndon B. Johnson in the 1960 with his great society leading up to the recent massive government spending programs. The result of all this is that the biblical concepts of individual responsibility and personal and community charity have been seriously undermined. Government, in essence, mimics the church in that it attempts to provide for all, creating dependence upon its kindness taking a tithe plus from some, using the subtle prompting not of the Holy Spirit but of the IRS to encourage that giving. Now, nobody likes taxes. Therefore, more and more voters have been exempted from the tax rolls, shifting the burden to the higher income families. And some say, well, duh, the rich can afford it. They don't need that money. They should pay more. Well, the problem is that the rich are the ones who create the jobs. And they're not creating jobs right now because they have no idea what new taxes and regulation they face in the future. Now, when you add to all that a thing called the refundable tax credit, where government actually pays out benefits through the tax code, our government has legally accomplished what would put most of us in jail. 
They've taken from one to give to another involuntarily. The result is right now barely over half of all adults in the U.S. pay income tax to support the other half of U.S. adults and their children who pay nothing. And some hard realities have hit us in the forehead. As one Tax Policy Institute put it back in 2005, while some may applaud the fact that millions of low- and middle-income families pay no income taxes, there is a threat to the fabric of our democracy when so many Americans are not only disconnected from the costs of government, but are net consumers of government benefits. The conditions are ripe for social conflict if these voters begin to demand more government benefits because they know others will bear the cost. Do you get it? Governments at all levels, after years of exercising the fiscal restraint of a drunken sailor on payday, have come to the end of their resources and find no choice but to tighten the belt and or to raise taxes. However, generations brought up on concepts of government dependence and entitlement as opposed to the biblical concepts of dependence upon God, hard work, and providing for our own, have taken the streets in protest as we speak. Some believe we're seeing the early signs of anarchy, which would likely require a dictatorship or some form of complete government control to clamp down and just keep the peace. Now, isn't that convenient? But, you say, we're okay. We still have the church as a solid rock. Well, if we're honest, even in America where the church is much stronger than in most nations, our churches are often built and structured around activities to entertain children and their parents, to make folks feel good about themselves and their investment of maybe two or three hours a week. Actual service ministry is viewed as a job for the paid staff. By some, tithing is considered legalistic not to mention inconvenient. Therefore, the giving, the average giving of individuals in churches today in America hovers right around 2%. Now, this could very well be a symptom of our previous point. You know, when the church becomes influenced by the worldly attitude that it's government that should take care of the poor and the needy, then private giving and volunteering will, of course, diminish. And unfortunately, this disease has not affected only the individual believers, but the leadership of many churches which decides on the allocation of the funds that come in. The Mission Research and Advocacy Organization Empty Tomb of Champaign, Illinois, has analyzed the contributions and spending patterns of American churches for years. Their periodic reports entitled The State of Church Giving are available at EmptyTomb.org. 
So what do churches do with their money? In 1920, the percentage of giving to missions from the total offering of churches hovered just under 11 percent. By 19, excuse me, 2003, the good news is that conservative and evangelical denominations were giving almost three times as much as liberal denominations. The bad news is that the liberals were giving less than a, a penny per dollar. That means the evangelicals were giving 2.6% uh, eight years ago. The combined average of overseas uh, donations uh, by churches is about two pennies per dollar. So where are the church offerings going? Well, the sprawling church campuses that have become the norm are expensive to operate. Congregations today typically run lots and lots of internal programs. The number of staff members and the amount of salaries has risen. All of this may be for some good, but as the authors of the report conclude, the numbers demonstrate an increased emphasis on internal operations over the broader mission of the church. Now let's wonder, if church members were to actually tithe 10% of their income, churches would reap an additional, in America, $156 billion a year. And according to the calculations in the study, if just 60% of that increase were designated for overseas missions, that would come to $94 billion, enough to feed, medicate, and evangelize the underdeveloped world. That would leave a fair amount left over for the local body and the community. The church could, in fact, start to replace the government as the agent of charity. Can you imagine the effectiveness of the gospel if that were the case? Now, let me be quick to say, especially for those who, of you who are newer here, I'm not referring to lion and lamb. Uh, church leadership gives a substantially larger portion to needs outside of our church than the norms that I've just mentioned. Um, in fact, having been on the, the leadership board for a number of years now, I can say that uh, these guys are really generous. Why do you think we're still in a gym? Okay. Uh, it's through ministries like Hannah Cowell and the Topeka Rescue Mission and the Crisis Pregnancy Ministries and Haiti Lifeline Ministries that, in which we find our identity. And just think how it makes you feel when either the church or some of your fellow believers in the church help you out. That's what the body of Christ is all about. I want to stop here and give a quick plug, an advertisement for a, uh, a program that some of you have heard about called Perspectives. It's a class that's given, uh, I think, over the course of a semester, and it's going to start next January. They're going, to te they're going to present it out at, I think, Fairlawn Heights Nazarene. I strongly encourage you to consider that to, to get an idea of the importance of missions and what role we in the church and we as individuals play with the gospel take, being taken to the world. 
There are some brochures about that class out on the coffee table over there. I think it's called Get Threaded or something like that. It doesn't say perspectives on it, but, but take a look at that. Now, what you, you are giving personally is between you and God. Lion and Lamb leadership doesn't keep track of who gives what. Uh, we're only responsible for what God brings in. I will say that if you're not giving generously to your church, you're probably not in a really good position to complain about the government or the IRS or Congress or Obama taking too much of your money. Because they're actually just forcing you to do what you won't do voluntarily, help the poor. But I digress. Back to more bad news. With some notable exceptions, please remember that phrase, Christian media is not well represented in, the, in a culture obsessed with media. This, I fear, is again symptomatic of our disease. Some Christian TV, well, it, it just seems phony. It would be laughable if it wasn't in the name of Christ. Even some Christian radio stations promote seemingly the sole purpose of being positive and encouraging. Now, don't get me wrong. It's great to be encouraging. But encouraging in what? Is it just catchy tunes? Whatever happened to the gospel? Whatever happened to the conviction that we should receive from teaching? As our own Carl Menninger asked, whatever happened to sin? Now, as another aside, I've got to say, what I've just said may be a bit offensive to some. But let me make it clear. There's nothing wrong with listening to encouraging music that points us to God. I actually do that, believe it or not. But just indulge me for a second. I raise this question partly because of a cultural phenomenon. Is it my imagination, or do I see more and more people walking around with earplugs on? Okay, a great deal of the time. As parents, we hope the kids are listening to something good, maybe Christian music, but in truth, we don't know. But for our purposes today, let's assume the best, okay? Now, I'll concede that listening to good Christian music is better than the other activities I might mention today. But is listening to that music for large portions of our discretionary time really the highest and best use of our daily time. The works might be fine, maybe even cleverly insightful, but do most contemporary Christian lyrics really reveal deep truths of the Word? Is a steady, primary diet of the minimal doctrine in that music really substantial enough to make mature believers out of us? Sure, there's a fair amount of doctrine in some hymns, and in some classical music. But is anybody listening to that stuff? I think you would agree that it takes a well-balanced diet for our physical bodies to grow. However, as a steady daily diet, 
is even good Christian music, is it even baby food? 1 Peter 2 tells us that we are to desire the sincere milk of what? The Word, so that we may grow as newborn babes. What do newborns do? They root for their milk, don't they? Does our actual use of our limited time indicate that we desire God's Word that much? For example, if you spend a lot of time in the kitchen or the car, listening to the radio or with earplugs on, I'm just asking the question, is it pretty much devoted to your favorite artist? And it might be something other than music. It might be sports telecasts. It might be soap operas, or I hope it's not. Uh, my weakness is talk radio. And so just to understand, I'm not picking on music here. It's just the better of these options. If so, can you honestly say that the Word of God is more important to you than your music or your sports or your politics or something even less valuable? Remember, time cannot be replaced. So as we continue to mature, or we desire to mature, don't we need a healthy portion of the meat of Bible doctrine? Listening to music is a good thing, if it is truly good music. There's even reports of me dancing in public. It's important to laugh and empathize at the movies. You can even learn valuable character lessons playing sports and maybe even a little watching sports. i got to admit, it was somewhat pleasurable to see the Jayhawks win something this week, an exhibition game. But I'm trying to focus on priorities here. Thankfully, thankfully, there are alternatives. There are many good and a few great Bible teachers on the radio. And I don't know, but there may be even some on TV. Now, as I understand, you can listen to the Bible itself on CDs, and I assume on iPads or iSomethings. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, you can even listen to Mike's messages that same way while you're driving or doing something else where you can't read. Our goal should always be to become spiritually mature and to edify others. And are we not simply naive if we think that we can become spiritually mature if we just get our Bible fix on Sundays and then settle for Christianity light the rest of the week? Now, as Mike says over and over again, read your Bible. And I would just add, when you can't read, listen and learn as much as you can about your Bible. Technology really doesn't leave us any excuses anymore. I was blessed last night. I was talking to Jed Wood, and, and uh, he, was, he just on his own was explaining how he and Miranda spent a lot of time driving around the country in, in their truck. And he said, you know, it got to the point where they just decided they're going to start listening to Bible teaching rather than just the standard fare on the radio. And I was, you know, I, I really applaud you for that, Jed and Miranda. Okay, enough said on that one.
it's clear that the basic institutions of our society are teetering. Many of the structures of the society and the church that look healthy from the outside are really rotting on the inside. And it's only a matter of time before they collapse and fall around our heads. Just before Jesus or Paul told us about creeps in 2 Timothy 3, Paul said that men have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Jesus had another description. He called them whitewashed tombstones, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness in Matthew 23. Now, in that backdrop, with that backdrop, comes the good news. You are the salt of the earth. Let's take briefly a look at that claim on the geopolitical level. Our country got its start largely because of the gospel of Christ and the desire for freedom of worship. Its founders were, on the whole, Christian, albeit of diverse communities. The principles of the Bible largely influenced the making of our Constitution. Remember Alexis de Tocqueville, the historian who commented on the U.S. in the 1800s when he said that America is great because America is good. Now the question I have is, while America is far, far from perfect, what would the world be like today without the United States? In the last 100 years, the U.S. has protected not just our own shores, but those of many other countries from evil aggressors and tin-pot dictators. And now we lead a battle against a force that wears no uniform, sits in pockets like a latent cancer and waits to strike, which is guided by a fundamental tenet of, if you don't convert, we kill the infidel. Their cowardly leaders don't hesitate to promise virgins in eternity to young men who will blow themselves up in order to kill as many innocents as they can. These are not the people that Hannah works with, I hope. Some of them may be. But they are, they are out there. They're all over the world. Without the United States, with its Christian foundation, how successful do you suppose our allies would be against Islamic terrorism? Muslim fundamentalists seek to destroy both the big Satan, the United States, as well as the little Satan, Israel. Just last week I was at the door and I, the youth uh, were able to see a pretty impactful video on the Nazi attempt to exterminate the Jews. Does anyone seriously doubt that God has used the United States to protect Israel? A nation surrounded by enemies? Now putting aside World War II, if God had not put Harry Truman in business with a Jewish partner as a young man, there would likely be no Israel today. You see, after the Holocaust and the war that ended it, the Palestine question had to be resolved. It was a British protectorate, and they didn't know what to do with it. 
And on March the 13th of 1948, President Truman listened to the pleas of of Eddie Jacobson, his former Kansas City partner, who begged him to recognize the Jewish state. And against the advice of all of his top advisors, who feared the leverage of the oil-rich Arab states, Truman led the way by becoming the first nation to grant diplomatic recognition to the new state of Israel. And at least until recently, the enemies of Israel looked at the U.S. as the big brother watching over to make sure nobody messes with Israel. Why? Because we knew that the nation of Israel is something special, that she truly is the apple of God's eye. Let's go down to the individual level now. What Jesus is saying here is that it is simply criminal for a Christian to isolate him or herself, to stand on the sidelines and wait for the great collapse of society. Contrast Jonah, who went outside the city of Nineveh, he sat down and he just waited for the judgment of wrath of God to fall upon those people. But Jesus, he went in, he looked over the city, and he wept. He wanted to win them. We need to be salt in this world because of the awful corruption, depravity, and sinfulness of this world around us. Arresting corruption also involves preservation. And, of course, in the ancient world, there there was no refrigeration. And the only way you had to preserve meat was to put salt on it, rub it in, or soak it in a saline solution. Do you believe, really, that humanity is getting better and better through some evolutionary process? You might want to take a closer look, if you do. God noticed this once before. And he destroyed the whole world with a flood because of that. Unfortunately, after the flood, uh, they were just as sinful as they were before. Humanity is a pretty stubborn lot. And because of that sad fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.13, You, my followers, are the salt of the earth, and you must be rubbed into the flesh to halt that decay. But because you are the salt of of the earth, as you're rubbed in, the world will react to you. You see, the man who rejects God is just like an open wound. When you come in with righteousness and holiness, if you're living a Christ-like life, you are literally rubbing salt into his wound. And that annoyance and distress he feels brings resentment to you, and hence the persecution that we read about in verses 11 and 12. That's why the world hated Jesus. That's why they fed the Christians to the lions. If he and we don't live and speak the truth, then their lifestyle, their sin, would be the accepted norm. Salty Christians should affect the world around them to reduce the crime level, to restrain ethical corruption in business and government, to promote honesty, to raise the conscience of unbelievers and elevate the general moral environment. Can you imagine what the presence of more salt would do in our government, in business, in education, in families? 
Again, imagine all those institutions without the salt of believers. In Colossians 4, 6, it says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How does being seasoned with salt help us know how to answer each person? How does, how does it make us more discerning? If we're deeply satisfied with Jesus as our reward and freed from the cravings for approval and reward from the world, at that point our faculties of discernment about what is loving will be less clouded with our selfish distortions. We will know more readily what love calls for because we will be more ready to love. Next, we've got another factor here. The illustration the Lord gives us is that salt has a savoring influence. Salt flavors things in certain foods. Without salt, they're just tasteless or maybe worse. The Christian witness is supposed to be to life what salt is to food. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, a brilliant humanist and Supreme Court justice, once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Well, that's a little bit characteristic of how the world sees Christians on the street corner shouting, If it's fun, if it feels good, then you should never do it. In a worried world, the Christian should be the only one who remains peaceful. In a depressed world, the Christian should be the only man or woman who remains full of joy. Not with the naivete of Pollyanna, but with the solid assurance of Jesus Christ. Our culture tends to numb itself with entertainment and drugs of one sort or another. People are literally dying of boredom around us. In a bored world, Christians should have gravity, but they should have the most fun. They should be the most cheerful. You know, get out and do some square dancing or something like that, like Paulette. Okay? You didn't want them to know about that? Well, I'm sorry, I guess they do. Uh, can you think of the influence we would have on society if we were more courteous if we worked harder, if we produced the best musicians and businessmen and artists and craftsmen and students, and we had the most fun. Lastly, salt has this other characteristic. It causes thirst. Jesus made the people around him thirsty for God. He attracted people. He repelled the Pharisees and the legalists, but the ordinary sinners were drawn to him. Now the question is too obvious. Do you and I make people thirsty for Jesus? Finally, we've got this troublesome question of useless salt. If the salt has lost its Savior, wherewith shall it be salted? Someone has said, if we're not affecting the world... The world is affecting us. Are we exporting or are we importing? 
Are there greater influences coming into the church than going out? If we're not salting the world, do you know what that means? The world is rotting us. And we will eventually become good for nothing. In a few weeks, you will probably see, if you look at all the TV programming, a particular movie show up, I would guess, several times. Probably a lot of you have seen it. This is called A Wonderful, It's a Wonderful Life. And in that movie, George Bailey, who saves his little brother's life uh, when they're young, and then he marries his high school sweetheart, but then his brother goes off to the war and becomes a hero, and George is stuck in Bedford Falls taking care of the, of the family savings and loan. When George wants to make a mark on the world. Well, in brief, uh, things fall apart for George. He has some problems. So serious that he goes out and he contemplates whether the world would be better off without him. He contemplates suicide. But then, an angel candidate shows up and demonstrates to George what the world would be like without him. Takes him to a cemetery. And George is terrified to see a tombstone of a, of a boy who died young in life with his little brother's name on it. And the, the angel candidate says, I think it's Clarence, says, no, your brother did not save all those lives in the war because you weren't there to save his life. And then he takes him into Bedford Falls, which is now a completely different place. It's a den of iniquity. Why? Because George had not been there as salt. And eventually, the end of the story, as you probably all know, is that the town rallies around George because he had, during his lifetime, given up his dreams to invest in the lives of the people around him. Now, do you and I see ourselves as part of God's plan do you see that we are to make a difference? That we are to be salt in this world? Are you and I living our lives as the salt of the earth? Lord God, we give you praise. And we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that uh, none of us deserve an eternity with you but as we will remember here in a few moments you sent your son to die for us each and every one of us to pay the price for our sins so that all we have to do is accept that free gift and then we can enjoy eternal life with you but yet while we're here Lord you have called us you have told us that we are the salt of the earth. Lord, I pray that you would prompt each one of us here today not to defend our lifestyles, 
but to seek your best in every area of our lives and truly preserve, protect, savor, and make ourselves the salt of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.